Thank you for joining me, Mark Grixtie, for this invitation to explore deeper together into the divinity, science, spaciousness, and intuition of hurt and healing with awe in trauma. Hello, Bruce. Lovely to see you and to have you on my podcast. We've had so much exciting times and developments and conversations and all sorts of work together and it's been really amazing to kind of work in parallel alongside you and see the kind of areas you're interested in developing I feel so crucial to the kind of work we're doing in healing mm. um so yeah you do a better job than me of, of introducing who you are and maybe some of the things that you have uh, been focusing on and developing over recent years mm. thank you Mark and thank you so much for inviting me I'm really looking forward to this conversation with you. I know it's going to be rich just because of, I know the sort of conversations we've been having in the past. Um, so my, I, I originally wanted to be a musician and a writer. You know, when you're a kid at school and everyone goes, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I was like, oh, a musician and a writer. And, um, and the, my musicianship, was a wonderful experience until I started to, and we probably talk a little bit more about the oppression model at some point, until I started to learn music under what I what we would now term as the oppression model. It was a very classical, traditional way of teaching back then. Um, and then there was another aspect of that, which was because I demonstrated musical talent, then other people get very excited about that. And they put all their needs and expectations on your on on you know on my achievements as a musician. Um, that led to a point that when I was eighteen years old, I was preparing for my teacher's diploma within the Royal School of Music, and at that point, I played the clarinet. And it seemed like it happened overnight, but actually, it was a when I look back, it was a relatively slow process of having gone from being a child that would just love to communicate I wouldn't even call it form for me music was a communication I could communicate things that I couldn't communicate verbally and so from you know I started playing on music when I was three years old so from that whole period of time it was just a joy of having a way of communicating mm. Then what happened in my teens was I started to just feel anxiety around that communication to such a point, even just looking at my clarinet would give me panic attacks. Mm. Um, and then what seemingly happened then overnight was I couldn't hold these muscles on the side of my mouth around the mouthpiece of the clarinet. The air would just flow out so no sound could go through the instrument. And it was like literally an automatic movement that was collapsed that was happening with these muscles and there was nothing I could do to control it. Um, nobody knew what that was back then. Um, I was just told that I wasn't studying enough, I wasn't practicing enough, I was losing muscle um, mass because I wasn't practicing enough hours. Um, and that was it, game over mm. for me as a musician. I thought <laughs> back then wow, just, just <laughs> about having such a love for something and it's so such a central part of your expression as you're kind mm. of developing and, mm. and then mm. to have that taken away 
Yeah. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Affect you? How did it hit? Um, well, also, there's a, such a tremendous feeling of powerlessness around it. Because if it because if it really was that I wasn't practicing enough, then that would be easy to resolve. Yeah. Right? I could just practice more. But it was literally something I, I had no control over. Like my body was just going off and doing something on its own, kind of completely separate from me. I think grief was my um, was my kind of it was massive grief because you know music for me was not just my joy but it was also the place where I felt safe and free and could really be myself or it had been mm. and so it was just you know it felt like losing part of my soul actually. Mm. So I ended up then studying a science, studying science, <laughs> studying a science degree. Um, and then I went to work for a bank. That's <laughs> like a kind of like the opposite extreme, doesn't it? From where I had imagined myself um, being. I think I just really dissociated and shut down from my whole creative part by that point. It was like, even the writing started to become started to feel too challenging for me. Um, you know, being really expressing oneself creatively requires tremendous vulnerability. Oh. And that I just had reached a point where being that vulnerable just didn't feel safe for me. So I went to work for a bank, <laughs> which was great because that's all very neocortical and very in control and this kind of false sense of I know where I'm going, I know what I'm doing, everything's structured and, and you know, that looked like that was going to be my direction. And then, you know, I just think sometimes the universe conspires to go, you're not getting off the hook that easily. Um, and they and I started, I, they invited me to become involved in a corporate planning project. For the bank and it was all around that they'd set a corporate plan and they wanted to know I mean this is kind of banking term how can we get the people to make this happen um, and so that just opened up this whole new kind of new world but the same world for me which because it was all about um, it was all about how to enable people to be at their best, how to enable people to, I mean, I really don't like these terms, but you know, what came out of that was kind of performance and performance coaching and, you know, high performance, excellence in performance, all that type of thing. This was the, prin the principal part of that. And it was really early days back then. We're talking about maybe 30 years ago, coaching didn't even exist back then. Um, and, but banks had lots of money back then. They probably still do, don't they? Um, <laughs> but certainly back then they had lots of money. So I would just go, oh, I would like to go and study with this neuroscientist. So I'd like to go and study with this person on creativity. And, I'd like, and they'd send me on all these amazingly wonderful courses. Um, and that set me up to be working around performance, which I think was like my to a certain degree was the beginning of me coming back to my own, my own personal unfinished business, which was even though this thing had happened with these muscles, which I'll talk a little bit more in a moment about what that is, what was really going on were under, was 
was performance blocks, you know, the stage fright, the performance anxiety, the um, anxiety in relationship to my instrument. That That's all very, and there are all sorts of other things that are going on about suddenly my mind going blank in the middle of playing a piece of music. So um, what was sitting underneath that was performance block. And this was like my body just expressing that at its extreme. Mm. Um, so what blocks our performance was like my underlying, I think that that kind of underlying thing that the universe or myself was pulling myself back to understand it. Um, and dedicated myself to to learning about what blocks performance and um, how we can release that block. Mm. Um, I started off in a very kind of classical coaching way, which was all about, you know, using the neocortex to manage nerves, um, you know, trying to control our performance. And I quite quickly realized that that doesn't work at all. There's something much deeper and much faster that's going on that we have no control over. Okay. So when, and I suppose when you're talking about performance, yours is specifically around you, you know, the music, your musical mm. ability mm. and expression, just so listeners can also kind of maybe thinking, does, does performance cover other things too in terms of, you know, not necessarily an entertainer, but performance mm. in other fields and mm. other areas? Mm. Because... Mm. When you're saying this, I'm certainly noticing and remembering many examples where I felt my own performance has been impeded. Yeah. Which brings to it, you know, all sense of loss and grief as you described mm. it. So would you would you expand mm. performance mm. out in a way? Absolutely. So interestingly, the type of performance that I was working with with the bank was about people being able to be open and warm and friendly with customers. Mm being able to develop relationships with um, and connections with customers. It was about uh, senior managers being able to have leadership performance, which was about their relate, not only in terms of numbers and figures, but also in terms of motivating their staff, the relationship with the, with the people that work with them. So that was actually my entry point into performance it was very much around you know me as a person in my work how can I be the best of myself in what I do and what keeps me limited in oh. what I do oh I see this is lovely so it's applicable to all areas of life that we call performance which can be anything uh, any kind of relationship with a, with a musical instrument with your work your kind of outcomes your in your interpersonal relationships all of these things count as performance right and what I, excuse me, was it what you were saying there was almost like the, you were talking about the neocortex, the kind of the more kind of focused thinking part of the, the, the brain. Mm. And you, if I got this right, you realised that you can't think your way out of this performance block that you'd hit. You can't mm. think your way out. Okay. So, so what do you do? Yeah. What did mm. you find? Yeah. Mm. Well, at that point, I started to explore um, meditation mm. as a way of, accessing something deeper in the mind mm. um, and that took me on a path of realizing that what I thought meditation was wasn't what it was <laughs> right um, you know and, and it took me on a path of meditation as being this is what one of my first meditation teachers taught me and I just thought it was wonderful she said our mind is, is like a lake 
and there's a lot of noise going on, like the wind running across the top of the lake. So the lake is, the top of the lake is all choppy. And, and so there's no transparency. It's just all this choppiness and all this noise and this, and that's what's norm. That's for most of us is what's going on in our mind. Uh-huh. And as we sit and we become still, and we just be are present with that choppiness, what happens is it starts to become calmer and stiller. Uh-huh. And then once the surface becomes calm and still, we then get to see all the rubbish that is thrown in the bottom of the lake. Hmm. And uh, and it's a, so it starts to become about this relationship with everything that's underneath the water within us. So that that was that actually became more of a journey of self-discovery, I think, for me than necessarily something that I then was able to apply, it, certainly in, in the banking world. Um, but it also took me then from there to work with the body. So I, so I started myself um, a yoga practice. I then trained as a Kundalini yoga teacher out of that because I became so inspired by how much of this information is in the body. Mm. And actually that maybe the performance blocks aren't so much expressed through the mind, but through the body. Well, that's certainly where that light speed kind of automation that's, that's keeping us out of flow, that's happening through the body. Mm-hmm. Later I learned, I should learn with you, Mark, but that's, it's actually about how the body is, in, is a doorway into and a relationship into what's happening in the subcortex and what's happening kind of in the, the deeper parts of the nervous system. Mm. But certainly we, we get more access and deeper understanding of that, I think, through the body than we, than we do through the mind. Mm. I see. So, so the, as you learn to appreciate these things, you didn't have to know exactly what was going on. The body became a, a portal or an access point for you into something that's been held below the ripply surface that may have been impacting upon your own performance with the clarinet in this case yes and that that was a a way in to 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 being able to heal something that was otherwise unapproachable you couldn't really think your way into it yeah okay right yeah yeah Mm. yeah and what was interesting then was one of my colleagues in the bank was working with british athletics team the female um, track athletes and he sort of said to me, that weird stuff that you're doing with our bank managers, do you think that might work with my athletes? Hmm. And I was like, well, let's give it a go. Let's see what, you know, let's see if they're open to exploring, experimenting. Um, let's, let's see what happens. So, and that was wonderful because that opened then up my kind of a way back into something that's more, that we would more classically think as being performance in terms of athletic performance which is kind of a bit more my thing than bank performance Mm. and then and then from there that was that led me then back into the world of music where I started to work not only with with, uh, performance with athletes but also performance with musicians as well Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it was during that time that then I got the answers around what had happened to me way back then 
So I was asked to give a class in a masterclass in one of the superior conservatories here in Spain. And I was talking about a basketball player that I had worked with who his, his foot, when he would jump up to his jump shots, his, the toes of his foot would curl in and his foot would collapse downwards, twist downwards and inwards, which meant that his body got pushed forwards and he couldn't put the ball in the hoop. Um, and he was a player that had gone from having actually a very good percentage on his jump shots, you know, 80% upwards to zero. Um, you know, that's that's a massive issue, particularly in a Premier League basketball team. Mm. Um, and I had and so by this point, you know, this is this is many years after those that initiation, what I realized that the body is holding is all the adverse events that it's been through. And we might want to talk in a minute more about those because I've sort of categorized them into uh, into some very specific group groupings. Um, this player had lived the first seven years of his life in a war environment. His father had gone to, to war. There had been a period of time where um, they didn't know where he was missing in action. Um, when his father came back from the war, he was suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, he then went to play in a team where the coach, I would think from the types of behaviours that he was describing, was also suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder from his time of fighting in the war. Mm. And that was what we worked on. I didn't work on his foot or what was happening physiologically at all, because the, the doctors had said there's nothing going on in his foot. You know, physiologically, the muscles, the tendons, everything is mechanically, everything is in place. Mm. So, so that's what we worked on. We worked on those early childhood events. Mm. Then we worked on his, the, the relationship with his coach uh, uh, later on. And there were so many overlaps then between the relationship with his father mm -hmm. and the fear, you know, that the, that, that, you know, he's not knowing how to engage with the strange behaviors that his father had exhibited you know, it seemed to him as a child, you know, the strange behaviours his father exhibited when he came back from the war. And that's mm. what we worked on. Mm. And through brain spotting. All right. Um, and he went, then afterwards kind of, he felt like that was worked through. He went back to work, back to playing and had zero problems with his foot. Mm. Gosh, so that's just imagine the relief there may have, must have been for him mm. to be able to attach again to something that is his love. Mm. So I suppose his survival is something that provides for him as well as yeah. him, you know, yeah. providing for, yeah. for the team, the fans, and all these things. Yeah. It, it's it's when you talk about that, it just made me think, um, <clears throat> you know, it's a lovely parallel, isn't it? Isn't it here that when you um when the thing you most rely on that protects you also becomes punitive and punishing, yes. you know, we sometimes isn't it what we call a dis sort of disorganized attachment, which is kind of the most complex kind of attachment. And mm. interesting when you are know, just hearing about it now, not to oversimplify it, but 
he the, the thing he loved most and looked after him in terms of his basketball became the issue that was then punitive and isolating and I'm sure full of all sorts of powerlessness and shame and those kind of things and then it sounds like that was something as well that he'd experienced in his early life this disorganized attachment that although he may have had a close and loving relationship that was yes. compromised and the person one of the people that were provided love and security for him actually changed after after all of the post the post-traumatic stress and became part of the threat and this disorganized attachment and kind of parallel between his early childhood experiences and then his basketball experience yes and you yeah. got into that you use brain spotting you got into yeah. that is that was it embodied were you working with kind of um set a sense of uh, so bodily representations of some kind of unconscious or implicit distress in him was that part of the work mm. so so it depends on the person how I might where, where we find the doorway in right. because each person's going to tell you where they've got most access to what's happening for them. Yeah. With him, we worked with um, some very specific memories in his relationship with his father, memories of when his father became um, very dysregulated. We worked with the memories. He had some very early memories of the war, of um, when his his grandmother was was killed in the war in a very in just an awful way, and those memories had stayed with him even though he was very small. Um, actually, it's quite emotional when I think about that because it was yeah. you know that's something that is how how, how do you even come to how can you hold that within you know within your body so as we came to those moments and then the memories of his relationship with his coach so as he came to those memories I and mean, his body had such very clear reactions to them and that's what we worked on then as we connected to, to where his body was responding to that so you can imagine we worked in a very very resourced way through it um, but as we but but we worked through the body until he got to a place where he he could go back to those memories, but his body didn't have this massive survival response in relationship to them. Doesn't mean like the memories it's kind of all happy flower and the memories have all gone away because they're not going to because they are um, just devastating memories. But his body wasn't his nervous system wasn't going to the survival response. <clears throat> In relationship to them, mm. Mm. I see. So, in a way, yeah, through having done the work that you do with him, of course, yeah, the loss, the grief are, <clears throat> are always going to be there about these kind of serious mm. uh, experiences mm. that he had with people so close to him. Mm. If I'm understanding this right, he's not over identifying anymore with that emotion. He can still feel into it, but he's not over identifying with it. He, it can become almost a somatic object of inquiry you can watch it notice yeah. it feel it and in processing it that changes the yeah. relationship with it and it doesn't impact him in the same way as it was when it was getting his foot curling over and missing the hoops right yes yeah yeah mm. exactly exactly so so if i can kind of come back to where i was giving this talk giving this master class and i talked about this case um and one, because I was talking about where, you know, just having this broader concept of where performance blocks can come from, 
because most people think if I've got a block on, for instance, on my musical instrument, it's because of something to do with my musical instrument. Oh. And it might be, and it's related, but it also, but the root of that might come from something completely different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, and in this basketball player's case, it had nothing to do with basketball. Mm -hmm. There is a relationship, as you say, because his relationship with his basketball had started to become the, the, those other painful relationships had bled into his relationship in, in, in the basketball, which mm -hmm. is why it then started to express itself on, on the court in the way that it did. Um, but actually, the cause of that has nothing to do with basketball. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and one of the, one of the, um, after, after the class, one of the teachers came up to me and he said, I have the same problem in my embouchure, which is what we call in, for wind instrument players. That's the way we form the whole of the inner of our mouth, our cheeks, the, the movement of the tongue in order for the air to be channeled through the instrument. So he said, I have that same problem in my embouchure. Do you think you could help me with it? Mm. And so I did, and again, had really nothing to do with his musical instrument. It was it was coming from um, attachment early attachment issues in his life. And once he was back to his full ability to play, he said to me, "Do you know what you've done?" And I was like, mm, "In what context?" <laughs> think I know what I'm doing more or less <laughs> um, he said I've got something that's called focal dystonia if you look it up on the internet they say it's uncurable and you've just cured me of it right focal dystonia focal dystonia is the technical name for it it had lots of common names such as the yips writer's cramp dartitis uh golfer's yips um but its technical name is for choking Hmm? Choking, sometimes Choking, yeah, some... target panic mm -hmm. for um, archers. What's it called for archers? Target panic. Target panic, okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, he just said, please continue with this work, you know, tell people about what you're doing. And he then started to talk about it. So I then started to get lots of musicians um, coming to me to to you know for, for support around helping them to resolve this issue which and if we go back to the beginning of our conversation there are people who have music is not just their life it's their soul if not you wouldn't sacrifice so much <laughs> for for a musical career and then to have it taken because it really does feel like it's taken away from you and you feel completely powerless around it. Mm -hmm. So I can see why, you know, with these kind of presentations quite quickly, the body would feel like the enemy. The yeah. body's taking you down. It's taking away all of your expression and love and connection with something that was so important to you, whether you're in yeah. you know, sports, music or, or entertainment. Mm -hmm. it, it takes away so much, but it, it feels like you kind of in your work, you, you flip that, whereas the body, instead of the body becoming the, the issue, the body's presenting something to you that can actually be where the healing lies, right? Yes. Mm. Yeah. It, in fact, the way I the way I present the work is to say, um, 
I, this is a metaphor that I quite often use. If you, if a, when a small child, when something really upsets a small child, they often can't really tell you about it. They're sort of in this kind of like worked up state where they can't actually express what's going on. And if we can just sit with that child with deep tenderness, really tuning in, feeling into them without any pressure, just giving them all the time they need. And we just feel in and we're tender and we, and we just let them know that I'm here. Whenever, whenever you can, let me know what's going on. But what happens is over time, and it sometimes takes child time, but over time, they just, things come down enough where they can just start to go, oh, well, Johnny hit me and then he took my ball away and then this happened and then that happened and it all comes out. And I think the body's often very much like that, particularly where we've stopped, most people that, have any type of performance block actually um but particularly something you know i just think focal dystonia is the most extreme somatic expression of that where the body's doing movements on its own which we have you know no connection to they're happening completely independently so that's the body in such a worked up state and it hasn't been listened to. Most of the time we've been telling to sh it to shut up over a long period of time. Mm -hmm. mm. And what's required is for us to go, my body is trying to tell me something. Mm -hmm. If I can just sit with tenderness with it and really tune in, be really attuned to what it's trying to tell me, it will eventually um, let me know what's happening. And then as I heal what it's holding, then the dystonia just doesn't need to be there any longer. Mm. How possible is it to do this kind of work alone? Because people listening to this or might be all able to identify with this, mm. this way you're talking about and this lovely way of being able to meet it so that it's not inhibited and continue to have to escalate in terms of its mm. expression mm. And, and the powerlessness that comes with that but to be able to process it through to have it fully heard and listened to i'm just wondering about how much people can do this on their own and whether it, it mm. better, mm. better done within some kind of you know a relational kind of diet mm. i think it depends on the person mm -hmm. there are people that work through this whole process on on their own mm -hmm. um and so, so I, I, so I created the kind of an arc of this, of, of the way that we can come, not only come home to ourselves, but allow the body to, to release um, and have the mind to release. It's related to the, the, it's not just body, the body gives also, um, connects us to the emotions and, and the mental patterns that are within this. It's kind of at the three levels. So I created this arc and the, the first part of the arc is about attunement. So it's just coming, actually just sitting and listening, really listening to the body. Some people frequently will um, confuse that with scanning or with relaxation, 
and it's not it's actually just really listening to the body whatever's there right so if i've got if i've got tension somewhere i'm not trying to relax that tension i'm actually allowing that tension to be there i'm saying you're perfect just the way you are i'm listening Uh uh-huh i suppose if you've got tension and you're trying to shift it already there there's an aspect of performance and outcome coming in there there's a pressure to perform to get rid to shift to get somewhere but you're saying just pure acceptance notice what's there as it is okay exactly exactly um i did a beautiful uh piece of work with um this lovely musician the other day and we were talking about we were talking about uncertainty he likes everything to be very certain he was saying the way he learned his instrument was about it being you know, step one, step two, step three, and each of those steps in a nice little box that he knew where to start and where to finish. And um, and he talked about his relationship in life with everything in his life is very similar, where it's very certain, then mm. he feels safe. Um, and I think what that does for us as musicians and what that does to us as human beings in our relationships, in whichever, wherever they are, is that you could relate it to, like, if you have a bell, if you were to hold the, the the bell of the bell, the metal, and then strike it, all you'd get would be a kind of dull thud, a doom. Mm. So as we try to make everything certain and structured, it's like holding onto the bell whilst we stri- mm-hmm. strike it. Uh-huh. And in order for us to actually enable mm-hmm. all our talents to come through, mm-hmm we what happens is we just engage with the uncertainty we let this uncertainty then we trust ourselves that i have all the abilities to be able to flow with that uncertainty and allow kind of the bell just to ring out this you know if you're holding the bell in the right place and you're doing it it just that as the hammer strikes it it's like And it's this beautiful <clears throat> ringing outwards. So as we engage with uncertainty and mm. we feel, re- we learn to trust in mm. ourselves and trust in our relationship to uncertainty, that's when the bell can really ring out mm. bright and, and, and resonant. So the creative expression depends <clears throat> on being able to let that bell ring it reminds me um seems to to, to resonate if that's the right <laughs> <laughs> with um you know some of the lovely work by mcgill christ on the brain mm. and uh you know what you reminded me there Ruth, is, is him you know when he says the more we try and control something more what we try and control an outcome we're switching into what he says generally is kind of the left side of the brain or more more mm. of a a bias towards the left side of the brain that is always trying to reduce something down something that compartmentalizes and dissects and and in doing so we're trying to control something but we're actually moving out of the present relationship the kind of interactive interdependent relationship that the right brain does into something far more restrictive so we're moving out of the real and the present into a representation And in doing so, we feel more in control, but we're getting further away from what we're trying to achieve because we're no yeah. longer <clears throat> allowing a natural relationship to develop. Yeah. It almost feels like it's 
it's a secondary relationship rather than a one. And when you're talking about creative creativity and expression, it feels like that has to be much more in the present moment in a kind of yes. in an expression and in, interrelational expression between you and a basketball, you and a paintbrush, you and a clarinet, you know, you and whatever mm. you, you mm. are working with. So mm. it, I imagine mm. it takes with your people <clears throat> a lot of trust to be able to move out of trying to over-control something that feels really scary and out of control mm, mm. into being able to work into letting go of that control, dropping down into the body yeah, yeah. and just going with it. That sounds like a mm. real um, mm. a tr- mm. a big entrust. Yeah. So what was interesting with this musician I was working with the other day was I asked him if there is any area in his life where he does have a... a, a more free relationship with mm. with uncertainty and he told me that he's a fly fisherman mm. and he so i was just moved by the way he talked about his relationship to the river mm. and how he he's looking at the surface of the river but somewhere inside, he just has this deep sense of what's going on underneath as he looks at the surface. Mm. And how he's able just to trust in, he can't put that in labels and boxes, but he can just trust that's what he's sensing in the river. Mm. And out of that, his arm throws the line yeah. and knows when to pull the line back in again. Mm. Um, and that, I just felt that was such a beautiful description of the way we can start to become, the way we can come back to listening to our own body. Mm. As not, a, it's not it, in this boxed way. Okay, that's my such and such muscle, and it's doing this and it's doing that. It's actually just, there is that part of it. You know, he is looking at the surface of the river. Uh-huh. His neocortex is involved. That more thinking, rationalizing part is more involved but he's also allowing just this deeper sense to be there and trusting what that's telling him. This is nice. So this isn't, yeah, you know, you've got to abandon a certain part of your brain that does the higher order thinking. This is not an either or, this is a both and. You can both use your neocortex, your amazingly highly developed kind of human neocortex to be able to, you know, calculate and plan and use all the information available. But the way I was hearing it there is, but don't abandon your intuition. Your intuitive mm. sense is also mm. part of yeah. that fly fisherman's skill and expertise, mm. right? Mm. Mm. This is what you're bringing back online. And I want to mention your your lovely book because I've read it and it's fantastic. Your your wonderful the focal dystonia cure. And you told me before, but I'd like you to explain how come that title, the focal dystonia cure. Mm. Mm. That actually comes from a, a Turkish Sufi. Um, poet who said I was looking for a cure for my trouble and my trouble became my cure and I think that one of the most frequent things that I hear people say to me once they've been through this process and and they're their body doesn't need to express the focal dystonia any longer. They will say to me, I've realized that focal dystonia was the greatest gift that my body, that life could have given me. Mm. Because it's not, 
because what happens is it's not just that they heal their body. What happens is that they come back to this whole different relationship to themselves, this really authentic, self-loving, self-trusting, attuned relationship to themselves, to music, to their musical instrument, to their sports, to um, other people, to their teammates, to their family, to, mm. in fact, one, I even had, I've had several, this has happened more, on more than one occasion, um, the wife of a client or the father of a client or the mother of a client write to me and say, and they say, and they've said to me, thank you for returning my husband to me or thank you for returning my son to me. Mm. Um, particularly parents because they say it's that spontaneous beautiful free child mm -hmm. that my son and my daughter was has come back again mm -hmm. is is expressing him or herself again mm. and they and i'd lost them mm. Mm, that's 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 uh yeah, that's a lovely and profound reconnection with something in the true and inner self that sounds so much more liberated from the chains of control that mm. sometimes we develop when we're scared. And, mm. and I was thinking, just as you were saying that, one of the, the chains of control sometimes that can feel beneficial and protective in some ways, but also we know has negative and difficult consequences uh, in others. And I know it's, it's it's apparent in a lot of musicians as well as other performers is when one's so scared of not being able to perform, not having a freedom and the flow that seems so important mm. in, in this kind of mm. creative expression mm. is that addictions can come in and as mm. an important part of trying to regain the flow, but at the same time, you know, yes. can, can be obstacles as well as, uh, as well as a kind of mm. liberating as well. Mm. Mm. I just wonder if that's something you see much in your field and, you know, what your thoughts are around that, you know, working with addiction and, mm. and dystonia. Mm. It mm. is something that we see relatively frequently. Mm. Um, I don't, I don't, I, I don't treat the addiction directly. Mm -hmm. And if I some if I I have worked with more than one person where they they have a very serious relationship with a substance, addictive relationship with a substance, and I I will often pass them or suggest that they work either in parallel or they work first of all with somebody who is a brain spotting specialist with addictions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes that's working in parallel. Where it's not that, where it's something that hasn't become so. Um, sorry, my mind's gone. My mind's gone blank for the technical word for it. Where the relationship hasn't deteriorated to such a degree, then often as we just work through this process, then the then the, my clients will be saying to me, "Actually, don't have any need for that substance any longer." It seems that in the same way that the dystonia sort of resolves itself on its own, those other unhealthy relationships do. So very often, um, more than substance addictions, actually, with the, with the group of people that I am working with, um, we see 
relation, enmeshed relationships, codependent relationships is very, very common. Um, and, we, you know, they're, they're related, aren't they? It's about relating to something in a way where we feel that that external object either keeps me safe or it helps me or it's soothing to me or in somewhere other it helps me disconnect from the pain that I'm holding on the inside. Mm-hmm. So in fact, you know, this, if, we, if you go back to where you asked me, is this just about musical performance? No, it's not just about musical performance and it's not mm-hmm. just about vocal dystonia. Mm-hmm. The, the, this arc that, that I offer in the book, you know, it starts with being attuned to yourself. It starts with being actually able to find a place of forth, being able to connect with a place of authenticity where you know you're just enough, which is internally orientated and just sits with some expansion brain spotting is in that very first part of the arc. So where we're able to let go of our need to look outwards to feel enough and I can just come inside and feel my enoughness from the inside. And we do some expansion brain spotting around kindness where I can actually learn how to be tender with myself again. Mm-hmm. So that's the first part of the arc. And then from there, through all that attunement, then I can start, and the kindness and the centering, I can start to become actually aware of how often I'm in survival. And in all the different areas in my life that I'm, my nervous system is in some kind of survival response. And then we work through, then we work through that with brain spotting of how to bit by bit release those survival responses and just and come back to a place of feeling safe within myself in relationship to the different external stimuli, stimuli that I have on a day-to-day basis in my life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we come to a place where often we find as a res- if we've had. Um, if we're carrying our nervous system in survival, there's often a lot of asymmetry in the body. So we then come back and work with that asymmetry in the body. And we're interestingly also working with the asymmetry in the brain as a result of that. Mm-hmm. And the overdominance that's often there of one side of the brain or the other. Mm-hmm. And then out of that, then we start creating flow. So then we start to learn how can I be in relation, I've developed a relationship of trust now with myself. Mm-hmm. So how can I now learn to trust into the uncertainty too? Mm. And be able to really feel in this beautiful, um, inspiring relationship with uncertainty. And, we can, and that's, you know, in the book, you can take that in a very general way, or you can take it in relationship to the, you know, to one's musical instrument or the instrument of sports if it's an athlete that, 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 that I'm working with. But it also can be in a general way of how can I just be in that relationship of trust in myself and trust in the uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, and then sometimes some people still have a little bit of something going on in their finger. You know, dystonia is often in fingers, in the embouchure, as I talked about. Um, in the neck is a place we will very often find it. The embouchure has a lot to do, with, you know, jaw, tongue. It's not just it's not just these cheek muscles and the, and the muscles around the mouth. And then in the foot, we often find the dystonia. Mm-hmm. So for some people, there might still be a little bit of something going on, 
And that's just the last part is then how to brain spot any sort of somatic kind of details that haven't just been released on their own. Mm, mm. So I think that's a wonderful process almost for anybody that notices themselves being blocked in somewhere or other in their life. Yeah, and which I'm sure we've all experienced many times in many ways. Yeah. And for people, it sounds like it's lovely that people can use the book you wrote, The Focal Dystonia Cure, they can use that to begin to map it understand yeah. it and work through it quite strategically it's not um you know it's, it's not all loose and just just you know just love the part you actually break it down yeah. and give people yeah. some real direction in how to you know not yes. just what to do but how to do it which sounds yes. really important when you're feeling pretty yeah. disempowered absolutely mm. absolutely and, and I do talk in the book also about um when something you know the level of dysregulation that's happening so a lot of the setups that are in the book because they're directed around or they're initially the thought is around self-spotting they're from very very resourceful places mm -hmm. we build a lot of resources in early on just so that that you know that the dis dysregulation um we, we can work off small levels of dysregulation mm -hmm. little bit by little bit over a long period of time however for some people the experiences that they've had are so strong that they that they really you know it's important that they're in a co-regulatory relationship you know and, and they can work with me and I have some a lovely group of brain spotting therapists who really know this method inside out and and are ex extremely skilled with it so um you know so people can come to any one of us and have some guidance through the brain spotting you know or encourage any other brain spotting therapist you know find if you find a brain spotting therapist that's local to you if you wish and I'm always available for any brain spotting therapist to ask me questions oh I came across this in you know I'm working with somebody that's working with your book and I wasn't sure what to do at this point send me an email um, write to me on Facebook and, and I'm more than happy to um, give my thoughts and support around that Thank you for your generosity, Ruth, and all the links to, to what you described in the book are down below here. So anybody can contact you if they want mm -hmm. to uh, yeah. explore more into that and obviously read the book to get a sense of uh, this at yeah. uh, a deeper level. Yeah. I just want to thank you um, really so much for not just, you know, developing such a specialty that feels like it can be so relief to so many people, perhaps as everyone to an extent, because we all get performance blocks and yeah. creativity blocks somewhere along the way. Yes. But, uh, yeah. you know, to, to develop the work, but also then to make the work accessible by being able to, yeah. you know, write it, print it, publish it, teach in it is a massive energy. Um, but, yeah, testament to just how, you know, beautiful and giving you, you are in this area and to, to liberate so many people. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing it today. Mm. And um, I think a lot of people are going to be very interested to, to, to look this up further. So really want to mm. thank mm. you so mm. much. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for all your support and inspiration, especially inspiration, everything I've learned from you that's helped me be able to create um, what I'm creating with this process, with this book and, and the way I work with people. Well, I hope you enjoyed listening to that episode. And if you're curious to find out more about this guest of the show, then please see their links below. Thank you for joining me for Awe in Trauma. Until next time, bye-bye.